Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guests are Phil Antunes and Tony Rischke of Simon Underground Solutions. Um, they provide custom mining solutions, designs, engineer, engineering and manufacturing site-ready paste backfill, shotcrete and grout plant with pumping systems for on-service and underground mining, which plays an important role in the mining process. Um, Phil is the technical director and Tony is the vice president and are here today to tell us more about the company and then obviously the importance of these solutions within mine production. So that's welcome Phil and Tony to the uh, podcast. How are you doing guys? Hey. We're doing great. Happy to be here. Well. <laughs> yeah and I appreciate, appreciate both of you, uh, both of you uh, coming on to the podcast. Um, so as we obviously all, always start these podcasts off, I wonder if you can both just uh, give us a introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background about about your career um, and obviously your involvement within the company as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate this uh, taking the time and uh, this opportunity here, Rob. This is fantastic, and like you say, yeah, Simon Underground Solutions. That's who we're a part of here. We're you know a group of engineers, and we also have a manufacturing facility, so the full suite of engineering, uh, mechanical, electrical, structural and automation. Um, and we love what we do. Um, how I got into this all though was my background is actually uh, more on the equipment side. So I'm a structural engineer uh, by training. And uh, I got into, you know, through, through kind of concrete design, concrete plants, all the equipment. Uh, so heavily into uh, mechanical design, machine design, and structural design as well on that, uh, installing entire facilities. Uh, doing automation for them too. So just really the whole background suite, I was fortunate to be exposed to all the, and heavily involved in all the different aspects of the engineering of a full plant and then into plant management. Uh, so I managed a concrete facility for some time. So very familiar with uh, the, the challenges with equipment, uh, the, you know, and, and some of the, the obstacles that come with it and some of the things to look out for. So, um, and so I've been with, yeah, I've been in this for what, 12 years now. It's sort of, you know, the, the full switch into mining now before it was kind of the concrete industry. Now it's the actual mining for, for 12 years now when I joined, uh, who at the time was Team Mixing. Team Mixing was our previous name. Uh, we went through, as corporations often do, there's often name changes and some iterations, but we're the same group that Team Mixing was. Uh, a lot of global experience uh, from that group too. And so we still have all that IP, if you would, and all that uh uh, background in our, in our back pocket as well. So that's a little bit, uh, so yeah, so that's when Tony and I started working together back in 2000, I guess 10, so that would be 11 years ago, um, when we when I started at Team Mixing back then. So that's me. Like, Tony, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, well, I'm the old man of the organization. So I, I graduated in engineering uh, in 1986, and went right into the mining industry, moved to South Africa and started in the deep level gold mines down there as a rock mechanics engineer. So 
spent a few years there. It was pretty awesome. Awesome work. Uh, we did some really sort of front end pioneering work in the development of PACE, like in the mid 80s, you know, 10 years before really the first PACE fill plants came on stream. So it was, it was kind of neat to get exposed to that early on. Then I came back, did a master's degree, went back into the mining industry in Canada. I worked for a, a different, you know, a few different companies. And eventually I worked my way into sales. An opportunity came up on the, uh, the West Coast, or as we like to say, the wet coast of, of Canada. So sort of Shangri-La, I'm, you know, working out of Vancouver area. And I joined what was then called the Thiessen team, of which team mixing was, you know, one of the sub companies back in 1994. So I really, I've been involved with, with backfill plants and these things they call colloidal mixers, these high shear mixers to, you know, mix cement and water, which we incorporate into our backfill plants since 94. So it's been, uh, it's been a long time already working with backfill plants. Right. Um, so I just wanted to even give us uh, an overview of the company, of uh, obviously uh, Simon Underground Solutions. Obviously, you're a global company across across many countries and continents around the world. So I just want to even give us a give our audience an overview of the company. Yeah, it, I, I guess I kind of touched a little bit on it more, but I'll expand on that again. We are a group of engineers and, you know, so it's, it is interesting that, you know, we have the electrical, the mechanical, the structural, you know, that whole team working together in the same office. And there's a lot of, a lot of collaboration and a lot of, uh, frankly, benefits to that, to having a multidisciplinary office. Uh, the mechanical guys can get involved with the electrical and the structural, even the structural and electrical need to get involved. So that's, that's really important and really a high level of competency. We all are engineers uh, trained with, with extensive experience and all our engineers have been in the field as well, uh, which is an important part. And uh, the other thing that uh, I think is important with Simon Underground, we're not, even though we're located near Vancouver, BC, we're not regional in our, in our, uh, in our offerings. We don't look at just Canada or just North America. We are in fact global. We've, we've put plants in every continent except Antarctica, uh, around the world. And that's from all the way up north, Polaris mine, uh, some, well, was, sort of been shut down at the time, was the highest, uh, you know, highest mine in the world at 60 kilometers south of Magnetic North. So we had two technicians up there for some time, all the way down to the Patagonia, southern Australia, uh, Argentina, uh, to deep level underground stuff, uh, you know, two thousand over two thousand feet, seven hundred meters below grade to the high, uh, high chilly. Tony, can you help me out? How high were we there? We were very high. Oh, it's very high. It's a couple miles up, so yeah, hard to breathe. I remember our, our one of our technicians up there got got altitude sickness pretty badly. So, but as as you can imagine, and then you know, in Africa, you know, so you get heat, you get extreme cold, extreme heat, extreme high elevation, extreme low elevation. So. And then with those challenges, of course, does come, um, you know, every country's got their, got their codes, got their, uh, you know, things that you have to adhere to. So those are, those are all things that we are very accustomed to and uh, kind of in our, our wheelhouse, if you would, our experience. So, so that's, that's a very high level of what we've done, kind of our reach, where we've, where we've been and what, uh, what our experience is. So. Yeah, Tony, do you want to add anything? 
No, I think Phil summed it up pretty good there. Yeah, okay. yeah we work around the globe. That's that's my sales territory. Yeah. Um, so obviously today we want to uh, we actually want to obviously discuss and educate uh, the listeners that are obviously listen to this podcast about backfill. Um, so what is backfill, and are there sort of different types? Yeah, maybe I'll start with that, then I'll hand off, when we get to the details, I'll hand it off to Tony, but just very high level. Um, if you picture, so it, when you're talking backfill, you're dealing with underground mines. So there's two main types of mines. You have your open pit and your underground, of course. And uh, so underground mine, if you can picture, you're, you're pulling out the ore. You're, you're taking out the ore. You're taking out what you want. But there's only so much you can take out before... Well, it's a really big hole and things get unstable under there. So you have to backfill. You have to fill in the hole you've made. Very, very rudimentary terms here, but just so we all understand what we're talking about. And I know the audience is mining, but you know, so you're backfilling stokes. Um, to not only for stability, but also depending on how the how the the seam goes, the ore seam goes, you know, you may have to follow it in different directions. So um, so backfill is at the highest level then is is mixing. Kind of a, you know, whether we're going to talk CRF or paste fill or hydraulic fill, there's different types of fill, but to backfill that, that void, if you would. So that at the highest level is is backfill, and as as Tony often says, it's it's kind of the 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 area of mining a lot of people don't want to think about because it's it's not it's not the pretty thing. It's not getting the gold. It's not getting all that stuff. Nobody wants to deal with backfill. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. So I think, you know, that is backfill at the highest level, um, you know, just to understand what it is and, and what it's doing. So, Tony, do you want to maybe jump in and start talking about the beginning of it all? <laughs> yeah, um, the, the original fills were hydraulic fills. So using water to place basically tailings back underground as fill. And it started in, the, in about the 1940s developed further into the 50s. So that was a fairly common form, as Phil said, you know, providing sort of support for your soaps or regional support for the mine. And uh, it sort of fell out of favor kind of in the the 50s towards the 60s. And one of the biggest problems was, uh, you know, unfortunately, the the loss of human life. Uh, There was a lot of tragic accidents because you're putting this liquid of sort of de-slimed tailings underground. You have to build a fence or a barricade to hold the stuff back. You're pouring vertically. You can generate some pretty high water pressures. And then these barricades or fill fences burst and you get literally a torrent of, of of mud being unleashed into the ore body. And and like I said, there's a lot of cases of fatalities. And so, you know, the industry kind of shifted in the eighties, seventies, really started looking at, you know, cemented rock fill as, as an alternative, you know, that gained favor probably, you know, for a good, good 20 years. And, And like I had mentioned at the intro, you know, I started doing some pioneering work into pace in the mid eighties. And stuff, but but Paceville plants didn't come on stream really until the mid 1990s. There was a, a number of operations in in Canada started using Pace, and then EHP Billington down in Australia. So some of the pioneering operations. So there there has been a gradual shift, sort of over the years. But it did start with hydraulic fill, and, and we don't see a lot of that 
anymore. I do know of one mine in Canada still using hydraulic fill, but it's sort of fallen away from the mainstream. Tony, I think you, you touched on CRF. So the, you know, if there's hydraulic fill and then, so CRF, what CRF is, is cemented rock fill. Um, and uh, cemented rock fill is, you take the development rock, so the rock that's not the ore, if you would, and you take that, and uh, there usually is some sizing involved, and you make a concrete out of it. So, you know, again, I come from the concrete industry. I'm used to, you know, aggregating concrete being half inch or 13 mil, 12, 13 mil minus, that the concrete we make is, you know, six to eight inch minus, so 150 to 200 mil minus, so massive massive aggregate in it you don't want to crush it further than it needs to be and it tends to be a lower strength you don't need a lot of you don't need a high strength generally when crf is used and where crf is used um and so you know it's it's a very it's it's a cost effective way the equipment's very cost effective way to do it and there's there's different we'll talk about equipment i think a little bit but just you know that's crf and then there's sometimes it's also called calf c-a-f a different place some places call it calf and other places will say calf is a CRF, but with a better graded aggregate, when you need a little more strength and a little more control, especially if you place the backfill and then you're going to be mining underneath of it, then you want to know what you're mining under. Where CRF, it's again, low strengths. You don't have the as much confidence in the homogeneity of, of the mix. And, uh, and so CAF provides that. It gives you better gradation of your aggregates and gives you better strength. And so you know what you're actually uh, pouring. So... Those are kind of the two main ones uh, when you were dealing. So hydraulic fill, CRF and CAF, that's kind of those two ones. And then um, the last type is paste fill plants. And uh, Tony, I'll let you talk a little bit about paste fill. That's more. Yeah, well, paste fill is obviously the, it's the backfill of choice nowadays. Primarily, I, I would say it's sort of, it stems from the fact that, you know, we, the, the mine, or mining companies, mining engineers want to do something with the tailings. Um, you know, like we've seen a lot of negative press, you know, there's been some serious accidents again, you know, back to that resulting in loss of human life from tailings dam failures. And some of them have been pretty significant. And then, you know, these things happen and they're, it's a big black eye for the mining industry. So there was a, you know, a big push to, you know, what do we do with tailings? And, and how can we how can we make the tailings storage facilities safer? Or in fact, how can we, you know, potentially even reduce them, reduce the size? So how do we get tailings underground? Tailings, you know, makes for great fill and there's these surface benefits, you know, of reducing your impoundment facilities. So uh, I said a lot of research was done, you know, into the 90s, mid 90s, these, these plants started coming on stream and like I said, it's just sort of become the norm. And it's what we see in a lot of a lot of mining operations now is there's sort of a move to what we call dry stack tailings, where they take the tailings and dewater it with, you know, belt filters, disc filters, uh, filter presses, things like that. You get as much water out as you can. And then you would just, you know, with, with belt conveyors, move this sort of dry tailings into some sort of a storage facility. Once it's, you know, dry like that it's reasonably safe and stable sometimes they introduce a little cement to make sure it's stable so a lot of mines are doing this anyway this is now part of their tailings management strategy so what we like to do is obviously 
take that material and add some cement to it and just sort of repulp it, add some water, mix it up and produce, you know, a paste product. And, you know, for people that are familiar with particle size distributions, you know, grading of material, kind of a general rule of thumb for paste is, you know, 15% of that aggregate of that material is smaller than 20 micron in size. So we're dealing with very, very small size particles and a paste will really, it'll look like toothpaste, you know, brown toothpaste is what it actually looks like. Very homogenous, very stable. It's reproducible. You know, the strengths are, are, are reproducible and known. So it actually makes a really, really good quality product underground. Produces good, good support for the ground. Okay. One other thing to... to oh, sorry, Rob. No, no, carry no, on. When, yeah, no, I, I think another interesting thing, because Tony touched on a really important one, you know, the, the idea of tailing stands. They really have, you know, there's been a few failures globally. Here in BC, there was one a few years ago, of course, in Brazil. Uh, really tragic accidents. And so the thought is, well, why can't we just put all that underground? And I think just at the highest level, there's a mass balance problem. Because when you're pulling the ore out, you know, it's an SG of three, three to four, kind of very, very dense stuff. Well, obviously, when you're for paste and CRF, obviously, when you when you break it down and, and when, you're, when you're doing paste, when you're actually in the mill process and you're taking those tailings, they've been broken down to a powder. So... The paste going back in is usually an SG of 2, 2.0, somewhere around there, and CRF is similar. So just the mass balance, you can see you're not going to be able to put all those tailings and all that all that extra stuff back in the same hole you took it out of. Just not going to work like that. So just, just a high-level piece of kind of perspective on how that works. So Yeah. Um, obviously, it sounds like a lot of directions uh, to go. Uh, based obviously on the needs of the mine. Um, we've covered all types of backfill, but how is it produced? I know you've covered a little bit. I just want to even go into a little bit more detail. How it's produced, it's it's interesting. So, well, you know, we often, well, we always get the calls, right? So I need a plant. You know, I need a backfill plant. And so, you know, the first question is, well, what are you looking at? Is it paste or CRF? What, what are you looking at? So let's use it one. But the, really the big question we need to know is, are you looking for a surface or an underground operation? vastly different plants. Uh, surface is, as you can imagine, quite a bit simpler. You, you know, quite often we can use a pretty standard design we already have or a, uh, you know, a standard model we have. Uh, when you're dealing in the underground space, however, um, that gets substantially more challenging. And again, we the underground plants all over the world uh, with very good success. But it is one of those, those challenges that you have to deal with is how are you getting the equipment underground first? You know, is it a shaft access? Is it ramp access? So that, that's important. So you can actually, you know, a lot of people picture, oh, the equipment needs to be this big. I want a, you know, a 10 cubic meter mixer. Yeah, but, you know, are you going down a cage? Are you doing, going down a shaft? How big is that shaft? Do we have to design the equipment so it can fit to get to the location, to the drift where the plant's going to be located underground. So that's usually a big challenge. Um, and the other one in the underground world is uh, getting the materials to the plant. As, and one of the biggest challenges in the materials is the binder, is the cement. How do you get the cement there? Um, you know, depending on the location of the underground, where the underground facility is going to be located and what's straight above it, 
we have done numerous plants where we can put a binder silo, cement, flash, whatever the binders is going to be, or a combination of binders on surface, and then go down through a borehole, you know, just convey that dry powder down. You know, we've conveyed powder down oof, 700 or 700 meters with success, you know, to a, to a, to a plant underground directly below. Or it can be done in bulk bags, taking bulk bags down. It can be blown down, pneumatic conveying. So we've done a lot of different um, methods for getting binder down. But that's often the next big question. And if you can picture these these bulk bags, that's a that's that's a way that we often see for especially uh, smaller plants, bulk bags being used. But again, there's just the logistics. How do you get the bulk bags down there? And then how do you unload those bulk bags? How much? How many bulk bags can you actually realistically unload in an hour? Everyone's got this. We often get the, no, I want 20, 20 tons of cement an hour. Well, how do you unload that much, you know, that many bulk bags in an underground space? So, you know, just equipment wise, that's at the highest level. Those are kind of the, the, the some of the big questions we ask. And then we start zeroing in. Okay, is this high elevation? Is it cold weather? Is it hot weather? You know, what are some of those challenges that we need to start dealing with? And, um, uh, you know, and then whether it's full plants or, or just portions of plants. So we kind of look at, at all those different components. Tony, did you want to? Yeah, well, well, obviously one of the key components is is money. You know, money money's a big driver. And I mean, to put it simply, the, the paste fill plants are capital uh, intensive. Uh, they cost a lot of money up front. You know, we've heard, you know, numbers, uh, you know, for installed, completely installed plants approaching, you know, anywhere between 20 to 40 million U.S. dollars for, for capital costs. And, yeah, you, you know, you end up with a phenomenal product. You get rid of your tailings or a portion of your tailings. It's all good. But, yeah, it's, it's a lot of money up front. Something like a cemented rock fill plant, you know, you could be running for, quite frankly, under a million dollars U.S. So, a lot less capital. Conversely, you have substantially higher operating costs with your aggregate type fills. A little harder to transport, usually truck transport. So you're paying for diesel fuel, you know, a little more limited in, in your production capacity, obviously a fleet of equipment, you know, to move the product versus pipelines for paste fill. Money enters into it. So it's life of mine, you know, uh, sort of short-term, smaller operations, little satellite ore bodies, cemented rock fill makes sense. You know, for a lot of big mining companies, their flagship mines, the important mines, the big ones that are be operating 10 years plus, obviously paste fill is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, it's, go ahead, go ahead. Rob. Sorry, no, I was going to say, it's, it's a bespoke solution that you're going to provide, um, provide a client and it needs to be obviously a number of questions that need to be asked and answered as to how you then come up with a solution and obviously the type of backfill that you're going to use and everything else around it. Like you said, the size of the size of the actual plant, how it's how it's going to move into place um, and obviously then ongoing ongoing use of the operation. So there's certainly a lot of questions that need to be answered. And, uh, and I suppose it, it's, it, it takes a bit of time to, to get all those questions answered to then provide the, the correct solution. Yeah, as, as you can imagine, it's lots of times is, you know, what, what do you want to accomplish? And then what's your budget? And a lot of times those don't align. Um, <laughs> as often is the case, right? You want to accomplish a lot for, 
for not very much money. And frankly, I mean, we've seen uh, before we've put in some underground plants, I mean, we've seen several what they, you know, they call mixing pits. So it's literally, there's a pit and they throw the rock in there and they open several bags of cement or a bulk bag of cement on top of that. And they have a guy standing with a hose and mix it around. You can imagine the dust and, and everything involved with that. So there's, there's CRF really, especially in CRF, you see it just a, a wide range of complexity from the most basic to uh, we do a lot of just slurry plants where we're just mixing the cementitious slurry, so water and cement, and then that's being poured over a haul truck full of rock or then into a mixing pit, but it does control the dust and it gives you a higher quality. And then to a, a full mixing plant. So, um, you know, equipment wise, then if, if we're talking, let's, you know, so again, we're engineers, so we do the full engineering design of the plants, um, you know, the structural, the again, as we've touched on before, all the engineering components. But then is, if you look at the equipment, then the, the main components of the equipment are gonna be your binder ha handling system. Um, you know, so it's a silo or some sort of a binder handling system with a dosing into a mixer. And then there's gonna be either it's an aggregate or some of our tailings conveyor, you know, going into a mixer. And uh, that mixer is obviously, again, very high level. There's a lot of other components always, but then a mixer obviously putting all those components together and, and mixing it to the quality you need. And, um, you know, depending on whether you're using paste, as, as you can imagine, as Tony was touching, it's, it's like more like a toothpaste. You know, the mixer is going to look different than a CRF mixer. So more paddles turning faster where a CRF mixer is larger, especially if you're using large aggregates. Um, you know, it's going to, the, the mixer design is going to be different. So, uh, but, but you can imagine again, just that range of equipment, whether you're handling tailings, which again is a lot of it's very, very like micron measurements to uh, CRF backfill where it's, you know, again, 200 mil minus 150 mil minus rock. Uh, the equipment has to be designed appropriately. So all the shoots, all the conveyors, all the, all the components, throughout need to be a very robust design. Um, and then the structure has to be according, especially again in the underground, you know, environment, you can imagine the structures underground, uh, you know, just, just the complexity of designing to a, a drift rather than, oh, we've got the open air. If it's a little bigger here, if we have to shift, there's no problem or you don't have that flexibility underground, so. Um, obviously, you've clearly done worked on a lot of projects and been involved in all types of obviously uh, mines in the field. Um, and obviously, you mentioned your worldwide footprint. Um, what are some of the biggest sort of achievements in engineering marvels um, you've experienced um, in your careers to date, both of you? Maybe, maybe I'll start there, Phil. I think uh, early on, you know, in the '90s, we got a call from the Polaris mine and. You know, and they say, look, we need a plant and we need it now. And literally, uh, we got that call. And in 12 weeks, we had a massive cemented rock fill plant with massive heating system on a boat heading up, you know, into the Canadian Arctic. You know, the plant worked really well. It, it was, you know, a phenomenal engineering achievement. So mm -hmm. that one, that one in particular, we we're very, very proud of. I think another one too is, you know, going the other way far south is the plant uh, Cerro Negro down in Patagonia. Um, you know, there was several challenges in importing equipment into Argentina. 
that uh, you know basically said if we can produce in Argentina, it needs to be bought in Argentina, kind of thing. So we did a lot of the design, and then working with local fabrication shops again for steel. And you know we were told, yep, no, it's all American steel sections. Okay, so that's no problem. And then you know when you actually release the fabrication drawings, they're like. Well, no, they're actually not. And so having to go back and redesign all that, but then working closely with local fabrication shops um, was, I know it, it may not sound, but it, it was it was an interesting challenge and something we overcame and it was a successful project down there too for a full, for a full uh, CRF and, and Shaw Creek plant down there. Um, so that, that was a fun one uh, to do for sure. And all the design challenges there. Um, and that was also cold, you know, dealing with cold weather. Polaris was another extreme, of course. This wasn't quite as cold, but Polaris was another extreme. Uh, so that was another fun one. Yeah. yeah and then there was, sorry, carry on for you. Yeah, I was just going to interject one. Uh, kind of an interesting one was a turquoise ridge mine in Nevada. Did an expansion. Oh, I guess it was about what, seven years ago, yep. something like that. And I think Phil touched on it. We are putting material down a slick line, I think it's 1,600 feet, five, 600 meters, something like that. So that is, is quite an accomplishment, if not a world record. Yeah. And, and that plant too, that, that, that second plant you were just touching on, we're also doing dry shock creek down a, a slick line as well. And uh, which, you know, similar, similar to, you know, binary, there's, there's design considerations you have to make so that, uh, it's not as easy as just dropping it down hole. You have to consider those things. And, and of course, then the impact beds and all that stuff, you, you can imagine dropping binder, not so much, but shock rate, especially start dropping that down uh, six, 700 meters. There's, there's going to be, you need to slow that down somehow. So designing acceleration units and then transferring that into a holding hopper underground was really interesting. Um, that was actually another one that I, I remember at our, the the, uh, the drift that was excavated you know we got a cavity monitoring survey so a full laser survey showing all the points and it worked very closely with our structural engineer and the mechanical design team that whole group and just can we fit all this equipment in it was quite an extensive plant it was actually a crf of the the largest mixer we 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 have a 14 14 cubic meter mixer as well as a shock creek mixing plant on the same structure underground um, so quite a complex system and uh, just really the, the tight tolerances. There was one area with a dust collector on the, on the top deck that uh, we looked at it and, you know, it was within what well, was within 20 mil of the rock, you know, the equipment clearance. And you're like, boy, that's tight. And we checked it several times. We actually had them go out and check the survey again just to make sure. And uh, when I went down, you know, for the equipment during installation, it, it was in fact within 20 mil. So we, we were able to, to get it that close and that the tolerance that tight. Um, but I, I think that's also the underground plants. There's been several globally that it is, when you go underground, you see this massive, massive space, massive cavity. And then as construction progresses, you see that cavity just being filled and then it completely filled, you know, utilizing that space as efficiently as possible allowing for maintenance, allowing, recognizing constructions. How do you put this stuff in? How do you, how do you put it together, designing it for that? Um, those are just, I think those are really actually proud moments, the underground plants, just because of the complexity, not only in the equipment, you know, a lot of people focus on production, but when you're, especially in underground plants is how do you build it? How do you get it there first? And how do you build it? 
how do you assemble it? And then how do you maintain it in that underground space? Um, yeah, all those underground plants are, are definitely, uh, I, I would say, yeah, proud moments for us. Yeah, so. I, was, I was going to ask, what are the sort of lead times from design to manufacturing and then into instal installation? Obviously, it depends on the complex of the, 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 the operation, uh, the equipment, et cetera. But is there, is there rough time leads, uh, rough times in terms of that whole process? I think on the cemented rock fill side, because the plants are fairly um, simple and some quite literally are off the shelf designs, you know, we could have a, a plant ready to ship in 12 weeks, typically pretty much put it anywhere on the planet. So, you know, that's sort of a time frame for, for cemented rock fill plants. I, as Phil said, the underground is a little more complicated. We're probably 20, 25 weeks in, in sort of design and manufacturing. And then you get paste, which is the most complex. And the, the, the paste fill plants are, are typically given over to consultants to construction manage. And the consultants will break up. Well, along with the mines and the purchasing departments, will break up, you know, portions into packages. So you get a binder handling system, silo and cement weighing system goes out as a package. The mixer goes out as a package. Structural steel is another package, etc. And this adds a significant amount of time to the project timelines. Um, probably looking at, you know, what would you think, Phil? Nine months to a year, probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to really, you know, by the time you get all the components together for a pace fill plant. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the time frames I think we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anywhere from three months to 12 months, potentially, depending on obviously how complex the, uh, the operation is and, and the plant. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, yeah. you know, on, on the pace plants, it seems like every time there's a pace plant, you know, there's quite a bit of engineering consultants because there's, there's more equipment. There's the, the thickener, there's the dewatering, there's that, that whole component to it in the pump. Um, so there is quite a bit of, well, there's always customization in these plants, but it, that is something that Simon, Simon Underground we're, we're working on is actually a, a modular pace plant so that we can massively reduce the engineering overhead, the lead time and the equipment cost. Um, so that's something we're working pretty aggressively on right now and uh, should have something put together for that soon. Yeah. Um, and as a good uh, conclusion, I just wonder if there was anything else you want to add. Um, also, I suppose, how do you differ from some of your competitors? <laughs> Are you going to hit this one, Phil? <laughs> we could both take this one, actually, couldn't we? So why don't you start, Tony? Um, I think, we, uh, quite frankly, uh, the biggest differentiator we have is experience. Um, you know, the sort of the, the pioneering companies, the, the Thiessen team, you know, predecessor to team mixing, uh, started in the early 90s. And, you know, I joined in 94. Like I said, I'm the sort of the old man of the group. So, you know, we have 30 years of, of plant, you know, building, manufacturing, you know, and, and sort of installation experience under us. And we've got a, you know, a fair number of employees that have been, you know, in the organization 25 plus years. So we have a, a tremendous amount of experience to draw from. Plus now under the, you know, the, the banner, the Simon banner, we have, you know, state-of-the-art manufacturing facility in Italy. 
which is, you know, really something to behold. It's, it's, and, you know, we've had to actually retrain our engineers on some other manufacturing techniques. So designing for manufacturing, as opposed to the sort of artisanal kind of construction techniques we started with in the, in the nineties. So yeah, experience is, is the key for sure. Mm -hmm. And kind of coupled to that is kind of our organizational, how we run as a team, because we do have, we do have some younger engineers. We have a lot of more senior engineers that have seen a lot more stuff. There really is, it's really an atmosphere of, of just complete, no one's got secrets. Everyone's ready to share what they know and, and to teach and to learn. And uh, when you really have that, that working environment, it's amazing what we can learn from, you know, like, <laughs> look at our, our youngest engineer. I've almost been working longer than he's been alive. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising what, what experience, what, what perspective he brings though. And I think when we have a very open mind to design, because Again, these aren't cookie cutters, and especially in mining. There's there's always unique challenges that we haven't. Oh, that that's that's a new twist. How are we going to accomplish this? And I think that's a real strength, a real asset we have at Simon Underground that we're not scared to. It's all pile into the conference table. No one's no one's in charge here. All no, you know, all ideas are good. Let's let's start pounding through this, and really the creative and the innovative solutions. Uh, that we come with and you know hey remember on the last plant we made let's not do you know what that was good or that wasn't so good how can we incorporate that background that history and really being intentional about reviewing our past projects you know after the fact and uh, what was good and what was bad and uh, so uh, another I think benefit asset we have is we don't pigeonhole our engineers uh, so it's, again, it's really important that our electrical guys will sit down with our structural guys and understand you can't just put three cable trays, you know, stacked, this massive cable trays where you want to put it. Um, and the structural guy to understand, oh, it weighs that much or that cable tray is going to weigh that much. And mechanical, you know, and just, just understand, can we, can we incorporate the mechanical design with the structural a little bit for more efficiencies and, and really having kind of everyone together in one group is a massive benefit that we offer, um, you know, along with the competency. Um, and so, and so, yeah, again, so no one's pigeonholed into you're designing nothing but the conveyor that's going to feed the mixer. We specifically and intentionally make sure our engineers are constantly in different areas. So they all are very well versed and importantly have an appreciation for what the other disciplines challenges are as well. Uh, too often, you know, you'll hear the mechanical, ah, the electric guys don't know what they're talking about. And you know, the structural guys, why would they put a cross beat? Why would they ever put cross bracing? That just, they're just stupid. They're not thinking. Well, why don't you go sit and talk to them for a while and understand why they put the cross bracing there. And, and I think that's a real important thing that we really appreciate and recognize each other's level of competency and why we need each other as a team. Yeah. And if I could add to that, we, yeah. we try as much as possible to send our younger engineers into the field. So, you know, when one of our engineers is working on a conveyor system, let's say, um, when they're installing it, we try to send him and it's great if we can get paid for it, but often, you know what, we do that on our own dime. 
because we recognize the value in putting our engineers in the field. So not only are they designing it, but they're assisting with the install and the commissioning. So they can see their own mistakes or they can see where they can improve this next time. So we, we build a, you know, a relevant experience base very quickly within the personnel in our organization. And it costs us a little money to do that, but, but we're definitely a better group for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm thinking, Tony, I'm glad you brought that up. That, yeah, we're very intentional about, you know, because a lot of times engineers are, kind of have that um, reputation of, well, site can take care of it. Or, you know, oh, that engineer doesn't know, he was smoking and he just wasn't thinking. And so our engineers are very intentional knowing that they are very likely the ones that are going to install this and commission it. So don't push it off to the field because that's going to be pushing it off to you later, right? So to make sure the design is complete, make sure it's intentional. But we were just, we a couple of years ago, we finished commissioning a, a plant down in Ecuador, a large, large paste plant, and some massive conveyors there underneath the filter presses. And, uh, you know, we learned some stuff. Or the engineer that did the design was down there and he's like, oh, I hadn't considered that. And, you know, so he was able to on-site resolve the issue, you know, fix it all, and it, it's functioning very well, very good reports on that. But then going forward, he's carried that through. And, and again, uh, doing some other conveyor design, it's like, hey, remember, this is what I found when I was on site. So let's not do that again, or let's make sure we account for that. So that site experience is huge. There's just no, no amount of books or degrees that can, that can uh, compensate or equal to even a week on site commissioning equipment and work, working with equipment. So yeah, certainly. But it seems you do a lot of education and learning throughout the whole company, which is good, as, as you pointed out, with the um, sort of young engineers. So that's that's really good to hear. And I think it's important in any type of organisation for for people to have that exposure. And it seems you guys are on, on, obviously on top of that as well. Yeah. Um, really appreciate your time, uh, Phil and Tony, in obviously providing um, obviously content around uh, backfill and obviously it's an important part of especially underground mining as well and and um, obviously other other functions that they can use your services um, if our audience wants some uh, wants to ask some questions or they want some more information from you guys um, how can they go about doing that are they are you on sort of any social media platforms yeah we're on on LinkedIn uh, Simon Underground um, that's that's our social media platform. It's kind of our pre preferred social media platform. And of course, our website, Simon UG. Sometimes we're called SUG, S-U-G, right? For short, Simon Underground. So SUG or SimonUG.com is our website. And uh, you'll find all our contact information there. Do a web link. Um, Tony and I get those directly and we do have, we do respond to those uh, within usually within a couple of days, any any way of inquiries that that are that are out there. And our phone numbers and everything are on there as well. I guess just because we do recognize it's a global audience, I got a call a couple of weeks ago at three in the morning, you know, and usually I have my phone on silent, but they were like, well, they call again. So if it's a call again, it rings. And I'm like, who is calling at three in the morning? Well, it was a call from Germany. Anyway, so, you know, it's one of those things that uh, we are on the Pacific coast and we, we do try to be as flexible as we can with our time. We've had numerous meetings at four in the morning and up to midnight you know, to, to try to handle time zones and stuff around the world. And so we're flexible about that, but yeah, please call, please email, look at our website, look at our LinkedIn page. 
uh, we would appreciate your uh, just your contact. That would be fantastic. Yeah, certainly. And we can include those in the show notes accompanying this anyway. So, uh, so that's yeah. for easy access as well. So, um, really appreciate your time, guys, in uh, obviously providing that content. Um, I'll show our audience um, who, are, who are probably a mixture of open pit and underground um, mining, mining professionals. So, um, obviously, it's going to be beneficial to both. Uh, maybe more so on the underground side, but um, I'm sure some of our audience will reach out to you because they're probably going to have challenges or constantly cha- have challenges throughout their day um, and they might want to um, ask you some questions. So uh, obviously I encourage the audience to get in contact with um, either one of you. So hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, really pr- appreciate your continued support. Um, appreciate if you can share this episode uh, amongst other uh, people within the industry, within the mining industry. Um, obviously, there was some content there that I think will be beneficial to obviously people within mining operations and um, may have some, certainly have some questions of some challenges they may be facing. So appreciate if you can share share this, ap- uh, this uh, episode with others in the industry. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.